Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. In part because the, the police officers were present participating in the lynching. What's a lynch? What separates that definition of lynching as opposed to a common murder? Some people met in Tuskegee Institute in the 1930s, the NAACP and some other organizations, to define a lynching. And they came up with the agreement that certain things had to be present to distinguish a lynching from a murder. One of them was that they had to be a dead body. Second, the killing must have taken place extra legally. Third, the killing must have been done by two or more people. And fourth, the motive had to have been race, revenge, or honor. Those things constitute a lynching. Now, most people think that a lynching meant the person was hung, as Reuben was. But the manner in which the person was dispatched is irrelevant. Some people were shot. Some were drowned, like William James Howard, and black people. Some were drunk behind cars. So how the person was killed is irrelevant to the fact of the lynching. What were the motives? What motivated most lynchers? This applied across the South, not just in Florida. Now, most people think that lynchings took place because black men raped white women or were accused of assaulting or insulting white women. This is not so. This is not so. Most of the lynchings in Florida occurred because of the alleged, often not proven, murder by a black person or a white person. Most lynchings took place as a result of the allegation of murder of a white person by a black person. And lynchings were particularly predictable if the person killed was a law enforcement officer, as happened in Newberry. That's the second reason, the second leading motive for lynchings. That's why they killed Ruth. Overstepped his bounds, they said, the white woman. He didn't ask for a glass of water. The most gruesome lynchings that's happened with Claude Neal resulted from the allegation of a black person, a black man, had sexually assaulted a white woman. In the many, many, many cases that I studied, if a black man is accused of raping or having inappropriate sexual overtures towards a white woman, there's a very good chance that he would be sexually mutilated. You didn't get sexual mutilation for blacks who were accused of some of the lesser crimes. But if he was accused of, of attacking a white woman, there's a good chance that sexual mutilation would take place. I could not find a single example in my 10 year study of lynching in Florida of a white man being castrated. Several of them involved in black. In the book, what I tried to do was not just tell some of the story, but to try to explain the context in which these things happened. What was the economic situation? Were they fighting with the jobs, with the money, over 
economic power, land. And that was the case. Was it the political context? Florida went through a period where everybody who served in the government mansion, mansion was a racist. Sidney Katz, the most valid racist governor of the system, doesn't chair. He was governor between 1917 and 1921, during the height of the lynching era in Florida. Never prosecuted, never pursued anybody during his tenure as governor. And beyond that, Sidney made some of the most outrageous comments, anti-black comments, that seemed to enhance or encourage. And then the moral context. What were the preachers saying? What was in the newspaper? The newspaper set the moral tone. Meditorial appeared, as happened many times in the aftermath of the lynching, even before the lynching, where the newspaper was decrying this terrible act of this brutish beast, this animal, this black fiend, whipping up the animosities towards blacks, towards family members of the person who allegedly involved in these things. The moral context, preachers in the newspapers were saying. <coughs> Now, so these cases that we're going to go through now, I want you to think about each of these contexts as we go through the period of the events. Let's start with Newberry. I just do better moving around a little bit. Next slide. Next image. I was told I had to call them slides that date me. Next image, please. This is George Garson. He was a former slave in Jefferson County. I want to explain why slaves were not lynched. Lynching was unheard of in the slavery era. You know why? Property. If you lynch, if a slave was lynched, the property owner, slave owner, got no compensation for that. But if a white person was a slave, committed an act that deserved killing, he was tried. And executed through the courts. Because the, the property owner, the slave owner, got his money back as a tax loss. So lynching became a problem during Reconstruction, not during slavery. Slavery is another problem, but not lynching. That's right. <clears throat> One of the most disturbing aspects of lynching in Florida was not just the brutality of these events. But also the involvement of the police. Think of this man whose name I don't know, as we don't know the names of many of the victims. Next slide. This man is wearing handcuffs. In so many cases, the victims were taken from the police or delivered by the police to the lynch mobs. This occurred particularly in the 1920s, 1930s, and what have you. And often a person like this would be taken out, lynched, and simply never heard from again. And often the family members dared not raise a question about it, dared not complain about it. The person simply removed from the from the presence of this family, from this community. Next image, please. Now, the Klan was involved in anti-black violence. But probably not to the extent that people think that they were. Most lynchings were personal matters, where the offended family led the lynch mobs. The Klan, this is a picture of the Klan getting ready to ride in downtown Miami. 
Constable George Wynn. He was the constable of Newberry and was killed by a black man named Boyd Long. Boyd did this kill him. This man, this constable, and two other white men, in the summer of 1916, went to Boyd Long's house at night. The folks in this room will know this story to arrest him for hog stealing. Hog stealing was a big deal in those days. People raised hogs for a living. And there was a huge hog stealing ring operating around Newberry. And they thought Boyd DeLong and his family members were involved in it. So the uh, Conqueror Wynn stopped at Boyd's house late at night to arrest him in the streets. The result of this was that Boyd's wife, that's what we back up. The sheriff goes in, Conqueror goes in, another white man's with him. Boyd asked to go to his room to get his clothes. In the midst of getting his clothes, he reaches for a gun, they later said, and shooting in this room starts. And in the end, uh, Sheriff Wynn, uh, Constable Wynn, was mortally wounded that the next day. Another, the other man with him was shot in the hand. They rushed into Newberry, tried to get the Constable Wynn to Jacksonville for treatment, but he died en route to Jacksonville. So a mob rounded up members of his family. Including his wife, Stella, who went by the late name, you know. And then they took him out to what was called the hanging tree. <clears throat> I strung them all up on the single tree. People coming into town the next morning saw five bodies hanging, <coughs> including a woman, as I mentioned. Next thing, next thing is please. Now, <clears throat> these are the victims. Of the Newberry Lynch. There are five men you can see there. But the woman is there too. Still a young in this picture too. But the lynchers, embarrassed that they had lynched a woman, much less the woman who was, as the record says, heavily pregnant at the time of the lynch. They tried to hide her beneath the body of these men. Next slide, please. There she is. Somebody told me that uh, the night they lynched these people, when they hung Stella, uh, the moon came out full, scared the white people, they ran. Mm -hmm. Next slide, please. That's the Dudley Farmhouse. It's now a state park, a beautifully restored state park. You drive in there, it's like revisiting the 1890s, uh, 1890s, early 1990s. State park. But there's a connection between the Dudley family, who owned this land from slavery up until they gave it to the state, and the lynching that took place in the 
like finished product. This is going to be the most beautiful cemetery I've ever seen. Pleasant Plain Cemetery. Several of the victims of that mention are buried there. That's not a lot of hours just parked in this cemetery. The next thing is This is Mitch Hammer. This is where they kill these people. As you go into Newberry, Highway 26, right before that sign that I showed earlier, you've had Mitch Hammer. That's not the mention tree. The mention tree was taken down in 1947 when a big freeze came through and we tore up the road. They came through, put another road through, and took that tree out. I have no very good authority. Next in this please. That's Lynch Hammer today. To the right of Highway 26. Behind that building is where that tree stood. Actually, the lynching tree was used in 1903 to lynch two boys. 30-year-old boys. For taking the heart out of one of them. This farmer had these boys lynched on the lynching tree at this location back in those three. And it was used again and again and again over the years to hang people. That's in this place. This lady owns uh, Ms. Hunt. She owns a funeral parlor that occupies the space where the, uh, a good part of the channel. She told them when she purchased the property, she didn't know that, that this had happened on the property. She swears that on full moon night, because the gospel dancers said, you should be out here. It's like daylight out here, even in this dark camera. Next image, please. Oh, that's out of order. Could you give me the next one just in case I didn't? Okay, let's go, let's go back up. That's okay, go back. That's, that's fine. I just want to talk about the brothers for a moment. Constable Wynn <clears throat> was raised on the Dudley farm by his sister. Their mother died. So she raised her brother, along with her own children, her own uh, boys. And when Boise Long killed her younger brother, Fanny Dudley, the matriarch of the family, I assume was extremely upset about this. And her boys were among the men who were photographed standing around the body of these victims. I thought I had that photograph, but apparently not. Available, but it's on the cover of my books. I felt that strongly about naming these men publicly. The Newberry Lynchings were carried out at the head of the Dudley family. They were photographed all four of the boys, from the 16 year old Frank all the way through the oldest man, standing over these bodies. I went to the, to, the, to, to the State Park about a year ago. I took the photograph, the one that was in my hand. And I said to the park rangers, could you tell me, I, I hid the body, I couldn't tell what they were looking at, but could you tell me whether these are members of the Dudley family? And they identified them right away. That's Frank, that's Norman, that's... And then I showed them the bottom of the picture. They're standing on these bodies of these murdered people. Let me move on to Rosewood. <clears throat> Except to say that Boise Long escaped, made it to Gainesville, they started killing his family members. According to some people, he turned himself in so they stopped killing his family. He was turned in by two black men, taken back to Newberry, tried a very quick uh, trial, and was hung legally, although there was some question whether that was illegal hanging or not. That was Boyd Long. 
Rose Bullet you hear about a lot. <coughs> and I did a film uh, for this play entitled Something Rosewood. That's Robin Morton. Robin Morton was the last person alive with a living memory of Rosewood. Sherry, uh, please correct me on this, but there's one other lady who was a survivor, not a descendant, survivor, who was alive at the time, uh, who was three years old when this happened. She has no memory of the event. Robin Martin did. I'm going to go back to the slide before that. We just go back up to the slide before the back of her. This is a very, very rare photograph. This is Morton Gaynor's um, one of my many visits to her. That's the Dawn Turpentine Steel Mill um, um, in, in Roseville. And the little children, uh, this is a school visit to the Dawn Turpentine uh, Works. And the little girl in the middle is Robin Morton. Let's go back to Miss Morton. She told me that when this happened, uh, she was eight years old, she could read and write, she remembered everything. So the carrier was her aunt. Sam Carter, the first man lynched in Rosewood, was her aunt. She had deep numbers. She had not, she been back to Rosewood for the unveiling of the, of the marker, start marker, which took place in Sherry. She had been back just that one time, I believe. Okay. Right. She had not been back uh, since then. And I met her through a newspaper reporter, living in West Palm Beach by herself, uh, her 90s, and I would visit her, and she would tell me stories, and she would give me stuff. This woman would never give me all of her stuff at one time. She'd give me a little piece of this, a little piece of that. You know, then she had, you know, she was 94 years old. I'm, the time I met her was probably like 68 or so. So there was a young man who used to be her. And I got a lot of top cooperation from her over the period of two or three years, including two trips to Rosewood. Her mother is buried in Rosewood Cemetery, and she had not been to her mother's, her mother's grave. But the things that she told me were so useful, so helpful in trying to reconstruct the happen. Next slide, please. This is more that Mrs. Morton is pointing to in, in the direction of the carrier home. She said every Sunday after church, she would go to her Aunt Sarah Carrier's house and spend a part of the day and, and recollected very uh, effectively about the details of the community. And I would pick her up in West Palm Beach early in the morning, at 6 o'clock in the morning, get her in my car, we drive up to Rosewood. The ladies never asked to stop to go to the bathroom. I had to go before she did. <laughs> no, not to keep track. Keep track. But what a gift she gave history. Uh, next image, please. Um, I, I first was five acres of land in Rosewood about five years ago. Uh, when Rosewood was, was, was destroyed, all the black people left. White people moved in, it's so all white now. I had been going to Rosewood two years before I saw a black person. No one would talk to me. I would drive up to somebody's yard, white folks would sit there on the porch, join the bathroom. I walked up, did you tell me where the, uh, where the Baptist church was? Oh, no, we don't know where that was. But where, where, where was the cemetery? Oh, we don't know. But where was the sidewalk? Nobody would say anything to me. Some four or five years later, with a white partner, a gentleman from Live Oak, I purchased this land in Rosewood. 
And within a month or so of having bought this land, I got there one day, and this gentleman drives up and says, What are you doing here, of course? What are you doing out here? I said, I, I, I own this land. Oh, that's different. You're a neighbor. We take care of each other out here. My name is, and so come by and meet the family. Turns out they are the ones that own the land where the Masonic College was. And invited me onto the property. We did many, many, many diggings under archaeological. Supervision, of course, at that property. Uh, but this is our property. When we bought this land, we couldn't walk on this railroad track. It was so overgrown. As a matter of fact, on my first visit to Rosewood, what struck me was I was walking through the woods and I saw what looked like a green tunnel right through the woods. You knew it was railroad track. The rails had been moved, of course. And by walking up and down that railroad track, I began to find things in Rosewood. We're back again and again. Next image, please. Among the things that I found in Rosewood were some of the old roads to the community. Now, mind you, when, I, when this photograph was taken, I was a trespasser. Once I got out, I didn't really pay much attention to whose land I was on. I was just about walking. And I found this old road. And that's the original, that's the condition of that road, as I found it in 2009, I think, we found that road. The interesting thing about this road is that as you walk down, the road was a huge ditch on either side. Then that means you'll walk through so you can walk across the ditch, and then you see a big span of cottonwood bushes. That's where houses were. Both sides of the road, you see cottonwood bushes come back first. I had someone who knows to come out that, that sort of thing. Tell me, that's how you can tell what buildings used to be. But we found many of the old roads going to the community. Next image, please. That's the property that we purchased. Um, that line at the top, I can't use the corner, but at the very top, that top line coming down this way, that's the railroad track. That's the old railroad track. Next image, please. Five. And we found all kinds of wonderful things out there. And we have now collected those things, and now in the uh, archive, or will be in the archives of Florida National. How, who, who, how many folks recognize that? You know the old wooden stones? And you have to lift up the cap, the cover of the. Next to me. These are some of my friends in, in, in the Rosewood. I looked at the statistics from the last election. Leaving County, I think it was 16% went for Obama. <laughs> Does that tell you about Leaving County? <laughs> so, white friends are few and far between in Leaving County. I have a lot of white friends in, in Rosewood. These guys said to me the first time I met them, I was out dating as you can see. The guy comes up and, and, uh, and, and asks me what I'm doing out there, not telling him. He invited me over for a fish fry that I had. He said, well, are, you, are you a Christian? Do you love God? I really thought, well, yeah, I, yeah, I love God. I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian. don't care about the cult. As long as you love God, you can come on and be a part of us. So I just, you just love the person.
close by saying that uh, it's a wonderful place, and all of the horrible things we've heard about the people out there are not all totally true. In fact, almost every place that I've been, and every event that I've studied, there were always a few white people who did the right thing, who tried to protect blacks, who tried to hide them, who fed and clothed them, who risked their own lives to try to protect other people, black people. And now what is aimed? The story of Willie James Howard really touched me. Willie James, you've heard of Emmett uh, Till, right? Mississippi, Memphis for supposedly uh, Whistlemans uh, and a white woman in the store. Well, Willie James was 15 years old too. And when Emmett Till was a little boy, he was lynched in live That's his mother, Lula Sayers Howard. Willie James was her only son. She's dead now. I met a sister used to photograph her prior open a few minutes, who told me that her sister never got over the death of their son. They moved out of Bible class where the chain was, was mentioned. That's in this place. Willie James worked on a five and dime store, downtown Lago, 1944. Very unusual for a black boy to have that job, delivering medicine to people, black folks and black folks. Very unusual. Willie James was smart, quick, people liked him, sociable, so he had this job. And Willie James had a great mistake. He fell in love with a 17 year old white girl named Cynthia Dawes. Her father was a former member of the Florida House of Representatives. I have photographs. Her father finds out that uh, Willie James wrote uh, a letter to his daughter. A very innocent sort of letter that you would think that 15, 16 year old boys like the girls, you know, I, I you don't, don't tell anybody. And, you know, I like you, and you like me, tell me. Innocent for the but, but for Danny, got a hold of it. So he goes to this pilot's house, where James had run home. He knew these people were after him, it was Saturday. He runs home to his mama. She's embracing him, and he's fighting the drive up these three men. Mr. Goff, Joe Goff, and two of his buddies, at gunpoint, take this boy from his mother. They go to this building, to the uh, which was at that time a lumber company where the daddy worked, James Howard. They make the daddy get into a car at gunpoint and they drive out to the Swanee River. That's finished. The river was sweet. Yeah, that's where they killed him. They take William James, crying, out to the river. On the way, Mr. Goff ties his hands behind his back, bang, ties his feet together. They haul him out of the car at the river, and Phil God takes his pistol, puts it to Willie James' head, and says, jump or I'll shoot. So with his hands and feet tied, Willie James jumped into the Swanee River at this location, and he died, drowned. The sheriff orders a black undertaker, Anvil Brown, to go out to the river, retrieve the body, and bury it immediately. No autopsy, no police report, Willie James Howard was kidnapped, murdered, and buried within 24 hours. And then unheard of after that. 
Next image, please. That's the font. I met her, uh, she was just a little mistaken. She was 99 years old. Living alone. In Orlando. Very independent. She gave me hours and hours of talk about what had happened. And she said, you know, that's enough. I take care of myself. I go around helping old people. Or I go to the nursing home and help old people all the time. But how, how instructive she was in telling me. She said, my sister came to my house and they left Flyboat. She and her husband arrived here by taxi. And, and they stayed with me and she told me what happened to her boy. And she never got over it. Let's that's Doug Udell. Doug Udell was a Swanee County Commissioner. In fact, at one point, Doug Udell, who was supposed to be here but couldn't make it, was the chairman of the Swanee County Commission, which is a majority of white county. Because one of the things about these stories is that if you look back to 1935, 1916, and how bad it was, it's interesting to see how much progress blacks have made in Swanee County, in Liable. In Marianne. But Doug Udell, in addition to being a county commissioner, is also, is also a mortician. And he had heard about the Willie James College story. He went out and got a tombstone, had a ceremony for Willie James, and recognized this death, had the community recognized this death. Doug Udell. <laughs> the Willie James College movie film I made, I think we're going to show that at some point, I believe. Um, tell that full story. So I won't go into it in more detail now. Now, the McCoy folks may have to correct me on this, but down the road to McCoy, it's just going to these these events really quickly. July Carey, the number of his grave site. 1920. 1920 was a terrible year, in part because the women got the vote in 1920. Many black women also got the vote. So all of a sudden, there was a lot of concern around the country, particularly in the South, about black voting, black women voting in particular. So that was a tremendous effort to suppress the black vote. You think what Douglas Scott just did was a big deal? It was West in 1920 when they were trying to keep blacks from voting. So it all came to account of how this all happened. But essentially, uh, July Perry, another black man, was and woman, attempted to vote uh, in 1920 and returned away at the polls. They go to Orlando, they meet with a Republican judge, Judge Shaney, who tells them to go back to the polls and get, get the names of the people who kept them from voting, which was the right, not really good advice, but that's what the judge told them to do, they go back, and it becomes even more corrupt. Moses gets run out of town, I'm not sure where he went, but I find out he went to Harlem, and then the rest of his life in Harlem. Thank you. Postal work. Postal thank you very much. Um, but then, um, word gets around that the blacks were arming themselves, that July Carey's army. They were going to have this attack on the white community. A black former slave told the white people this is going on. I can't tell you how many cases I came across where blacks were betrayed by other blacks who told the white folks they could be ready to do this. And it comes to a black person, it's assumed to be true. Now comes this attack on the Perry home and the attack on, on, on black, one of the black sections of the court. So burned terribly, a lot of homes were lost, people had to leave. Um, 
I drive Eric home. I was told, what's uh, the next line, please? Could you go back up? Back up? Back up? Okay, right. Right, okay. Now, this is one of the properties that the Eric that drives family home. And my place of the record, I believe this house is located at this place. This funeral home was, was, uh, was constructed later on the site. But the folks from Otori know a little bit better about the properties than I do. This is on the old Apocalypse Road, uh, with deep records from the July Perry's house to here, and Moe Norman's house right across the street from it. <clears throat> anyway, July Perry was eventually lynched. They took him from the jail and took him within a couple of blocks of Jeff Cheney's house to send a message to the Republicans who were helping the Knicks gain power, liberty. And he was hung there. Correct more or less? That's right. details of the Okay. Next slide. That's uh, the Mem's home in the Rock County, or the Moore County. Now I want to say this. With the possible exception of Osceola, Harry T. Moore was the most courageous man who ever walked in Florida. It is incredible what he was doing in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, going around the state organizing chapters of his, of his, of his political organization, activating blacks to vote. In rural counties, accusing white sheriffs of murdering blacks in their, in their power, in their control, under the auspices. He lived a dangerous life. Christmas time, 1951, a bomb promised not dynamite. The blast was too severe for it to have been dynamite. It was more likely than that to have been. It was placed under the floorboards of this man's home, under the bedroom, in fact. He and his wife were sitting. Christmas night, 51, and this bomb goes off. And Harry's body was thrown into the sea. His favorite bone in his body was broken. They put him and his wife as well, both terribly injured. They put him in a car to drive him from Mims to Stanford. The only hospital that would take blacks uh, was. And uh, those of you who know the area of 1792 Bridge goes over the St. John's River, coming down into Stanford. He died on the down stroke of that bridge. By the time he hit the bottom of that bridge, he was gone. In his mother's arms. They begged him, don't leave me here, don't leave me here. But they killed him. Next image, please. That's him and his wife. In their arms wrote, uh, we don't have the date, but probably late 19, early 1940s or mid 40s. Can you say the name one more time? Harry T. Moore. Next image, please. Uh, Roland. Next story. The Roseland Four, four black men, 1949. What is the Roseland Four? 49, right? 49. Four black men, one of them was a boy, 16, accused of raping Norma Patchett, a white woman. One man escaped. They find him, a posse found him in Taylor County. They shot him. They say he was there, but probably not. The 16-year-old boy got life only because of his age. The other two got the death penalty. So 
So they were tried by an all-white jury, sentenced to rape and to be executed. The U.S. Supreme Court says, ruled that because there were no blacks in the jury, the case had to be retried. So Sheriff Willis V. McCall, one of my favorite characters in Florida history, Willis was Florida's bull of Khan. He was a sheriff of Lake County. That's my grandmother, he was a high sheriff. And there was a sheriff that was a high sheriff. Willis was a high sheriff. So Willis goes up to get these two boys to bring them back to be tried in the county next door, or close by, still in rural county. And on this lonely, dark road, two versions of what happened emerged. Willis said that one of the men asked to relieve himself. So he said he pulled the car over, let the men out, and they jumped. And he said he pulled his revolver and started shooting and didn't stop until he heard the clip of uh, all the bullets come out. And one of the men was killed, Walter Irvin survived. They thought he was dead, but he survived. To tell what happened from his point of view. This photograph was taken moments after Willis shot the men. Now the story goes, according to the black men, that they did stop, Willis hauled him out of the car and shot him on the spot, executing them before they went back to trial. We don't really know what happened. But the, the forensic evidence shows that there was a struggle. Because clothes, from, from the men's clothes and, 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 uh, and Willis's clothes all meshed. So there was a struggle. It wasn't like the black man said, just call, call us out and shot. That was contact. I'm thinking about that. If I had been Walter Irvin, one of those guys, in the car, Willis would have had him shackled, he just got him handcuffed. That was a mistake. But if I had been one of those men on my way to be retried, probably going to get the death penalty again, I would have jumped with it. I think they jumped it. Doesn't matter. Because he gets retried, gets the death penalty. Fortunately, some years later, he gets uh, released from prison and does not. His, his, his son has got a new community to life. I think by last year. Was last year? And then later he was released. Um, and I died just a short time after he got out of prison. Next minute, please. That's, that's uh, Land, one of the streets that the white mob attacked as they came into, into Groveland. Next minute, please. I think there's another image. That's the corner where most of the violence took place. That's the corner? That's the corner. These, these people came in on Highway 50. I think there was a shot of Highway 50. Next minute, please. Uh, that's where the urban home was, right? Urban Roberts? Yep. Right, they burned the house down, of course. Yep. Mm -hmm. Next one, please. Okay, let's go back up. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Claude Neal. What's the last name, sir? Claude Neal, N-E-A-L. Claude Neal. Why was the Leo mention so important? The Claude Leo mention was important because it gained national and even international attention. The Soviets were writing about it back in the day, saying at the time how it was that in an American land of the free, they were lynching black people. What's the story? Claude Leo was a young black man, probably in his 30s. 
who lived um, near Mariana, uh, outside of town, stayed most of the time with one of his mother's sisters. His mother's sister owned a piece of property that was close to or was within eyesight of the property of a white family, the Canada family, C-N-N-A-B-Y. You could see the Canada home from Leo's aunt's house. Lola Kennedy, young woman, goes out to water the halls and ends up murdered. They found her body hidden under some bushes near the hall truck. And within a few hours, Claude Neal was arrested for this murder. Now, I must say that there was evidence on the ground that Neal may have been involved, may have been. Doesn't matter. He was lynched. He died in terms of person, whether he murdered Lola or not. And I wanted to know more about the relationship between uh, Claude Neal and Lola Kennedy, the young white woman. I did months and months of searching, 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 and I had heard rumors from relatives of Claude Neal that Lola Kennedy and Claude Neal were lovers. Turns out they might be denied. Lola's family today denied that there was a sexual relationship between the two, but there was. I found a newspaper in Galveston, Texas, that told the story in great detail. That Lola and Claude had a relationship, her parents wanted to end it, that she and, uh, and Claude met at the, uh, the hall trough. Mm -hmm. uh, the story goes that Mia wanted to have sex with her, she said no, and they started fighting. There was evidence on the ground of a woman's footprints and a man's footprints circling each other, blood scattering the ground. Man's footprints going back to the to, to Annie Smith's house. Apparently, Lola wasn't killed. She drove herself back to her, trying to get back to her house. Male footprints leading from Annie's house to the spot where the girl was crawling. More blood to bladder. Then a trail of blood being drawn to the bushes where the body was found and covered up. Male footprints going back to Annie Smith's house. They found a part of Claudia's watch in her hand, and a piece of cloth from his shirt in her hand. So he may have done it. Doesn't matter. The crowd begins together at the Kennedy House. Thousands of people. Word goes out in the newspapers that that's going to lynch all white folks in the These people start coming from all over to the Kennedy farm. For this lynching. <clears throat> no police in sight. It got so bad that some of the white folks who were leaders in the community were afraid that there's not be a riot, folks trying to get to the body, trying to get to Neil, to kill him. So a committee of six men emerged who took Claude Neal to a place called Perry Land. Mutilated him sexually in ways I can't say here, but they were horrific sexual mutilations. Killed him, took him uh, on the bumper of the car to the uh, Kennedy home, took him out, drug the body past the house, and then 
cut it loose, and people attacked it. There were children, eight years old, little kids coming out of a Canada house, stabbing his body with sticks. Lola's father was crying on the porch because they let him kill him. They promised not to kill him. They promised not to kill him. And then they hung the body in, um, in the courthouse. The people kept coming, kept coming. The day, well, the, the morning they hung him, the sheriff kept the body down. But the people were so angry that they didn't get a chance to see the mention, or even the body, that the sheriff took the body, put it on the steps of the jail, the front door, so people could drive by and see the mutilated body of Claude Neal. And then this became Jackson County's secret. Nobody talking about who these men were. Take out your pens. The committee of six was more than six people. May have been as many as fifteen. But the main names of the people who took this man out were Sim Hall, S-I-M-H-A-L-L. Many members of the Hall family were probably involved. Did you get the nails that you put in the centuries? Sydney Green Hall. Clifton Hall. O.B. Griffin. Jim Owens, you see if you get that presentation Wilbur Hatcher, Wilbur Hatcher, Hatcher. This little person just has part of his name, Fletcher, Sugar Boy. Coy Silvai, Coy Green. And John Drucker. John Drucker. Now, of course I say, well, I'd like to tell you what are your sources. I'll never tell. <laughs> These folks would be Ryan and Jackson County. But they told me, and I got the information too late to put in the book. I beg the University Press, let me please add these names uh, to the book. But it was too late. The book just moved towards one to the printer, so we couldn't put those names down. But there are enough of you in this room who took these names down that from now on there should be no secret about who the people were who committed this murder. Now, before you read something, that They're going themselves to Oh, okay. Okay. That's the Hatcher family. I'm not sure which of them were actually there, but those are Hatchers. Those are Pauls. These were families that lived near the Kent the Canada family. So his neighbors, Lola's neighbors were the ones who led his killing. The man with the black hat was the ringleader. The, the, the deputized sheriff of this mentioned party. But some of these men, I'm not sure, we'll find out which ones were which. 
But it was a famine then. We can, we can close that now. Thank you. So, what was to be made of all of this? Was it Newberry, Claude Neal, Rosewood, Otoli? Florida was a dangerous place. It didn't take much to get you killed. Read the list of every person that was known to have been mentioned in Florida. By counties. By year. It's in the back of my book. Some of you may find relatives in there. But I stress the word that were known because so many people were lynched and they were not. Never came to light. So this history is the underside of Florida's history. It's not about Disney World. It's not about all the things that the state of Florida now wants to project as our image. But believe me, this was a dangerous place for black people for almost a century. But it's also just as important to note that there's not a single white person alive today that had anything to do with any of these mentions. And when I've given these talks, particularly to young people, to high school kids, I try to make this point. You have no right to be angry with anybody about what happened. Anybody in this room. It's not about your being able to let the white folks know how bad you feel about what they did to us. And I say to white, you have no reason to feel guilty about this. You didn't do it. Even if your relatives did it, you didn't do it. So we gotta separate the guilt out, get the anger in, in the proper place, to move on as a country. And what an opportunity we now have in fact to do that. Yay. I spent a copy of the Rosewood film. I did a film on Willie James, which you'll see. And also the state film on Rosewood. I sent it to Michelle Obama. Got a letter back. Now, had, I don't want to be personal, I don't want to get personal, but had I sent that to Ann, what's your name? Um, Romney. I'm not sure I would have gotten a letter back. So as I say, the times are with us. And this history can become known if we tell it in the right way, project it in the right way. Not appeal to the worst side of us, why not? We're trying to get the history out because it needs to be done, it needs to be told. I'll leave with just one other comment about what happened when I went to the Dutch Farm to the park. And they, they, they had all these people come down from Tallahassee. The Dutch come here with a lunch of what happened. And because they didn't know, they heard a little bit about this, panic, dumping this, and sheriff winning that, but they didn't really know the story. So they invited me to come to the Dutch last month, I think it was. Now, right now, I wish I had that one photo. I just, I'm not sure why it's not up, uh, but the photo of these men standing around the bottle of the Newberry victims. So I did the presentation, showed them the photograph, and then said, So, you know, we got this party, people come in at the bookstore, and you know, all this all this Dudley Farm. What are you going to do with this photograph? And I think they all spoke in unison. We're going to show it. We're going to put it up. We're not going to hide that part of the history. We're historians. 
We're going to tell the story as it comes to us. So some of this, we ought to be a part of that. We go to the group and photograph, showing the, the principles and the stuff that there was a family involved in it. So I applaud them for that. But I think that's the, that's the reflection of these times. But people want to know this history. Even the white people in the rose would to know what happened on that property. What happened here? And we're trying to get these stories out. And that's why we're here today. Not just to tell the stories, but understand the context. Political, sexual, moral, economic. Of the detention. And walk away from the conference with not just knowledge of the facts, but also of the times and of the spirit and of the changes that have happened since these gruesome events took place. Thank you very much. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. So then Mama had to be gathered up in all her hands and put in this concept. And she had a young baby that bone. So my sister was my sister, and they smothered her out there. Because so many people who been there, you know, hate together and eat, you know. So it got hotter and hotter with all these bodies. There so many people in this small area. So I lost a sister in this room, but they had to be God. The boss man had to stand outside the commissary up with a railroad. So there wasn't no highway. You got a highway there now, but there wasn't no highway there then. Okay? What you see now wasn't there. 24 was there, but it wasn't paid. So there was dirt road, and people coming from out of state. Everywhere coming, killing black folks, all the way from Gainesville, all the way forth. If they seen a black person, side of the road, he was dead. So, in order to save them, they had to guard them. They stood outside the road, and then somebody called and said, Keep going, don't stop here. This is not Rosebrook. A lot of people didn't know Rosebrook from nowhere else. All they know is some black folks, so they didn't want to kill them. And so that's, that's what happened at the Elder Crop. But my mother lost my sister, because they wouldn't pay us nothing, but they said you had to be in Rosebrook in to get some money. So we tried, but they wouldn't do anything about it. But this is one of the worst atrocities. Mama said this thing lasted for a week, and then just nothing but red. You can see red down there where they burning the houses. And a lot of the people that I got to know that was. This, uh, dang, her daddy knows I'm sorry, but I'm old now, I can't, can't get it out there. <laughs> you know? But her daddy knows my new old, I got to get that no loop. He roots the head up there, just followed up. I knew her from a distance, you know, I didn't know her close to friends, but she used to come down there with about your brother, because he moved all the creek. Well, that case, young man, go on. They had two black people that left working in the commissary, digging up the time, but them guys said, fuck that. Was well educated. He could have run them, figure out on down, one of them was real, you know. But, you know, they, people in the Rosewood was real, most of them well educated. Nice neighborhood, they had everything. 
because they had to guard them because they needed you to work. And you and the animals was, was on top, was top priority. They needed the horses and the mules, and they needed black people to do that manual labor. If it was, if it was like the other day, they would have killed them all because they don't need them no more. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Joanne and Scott. Well, we have uh, Jamie Bradley Black, Blake, you know, put all the names, John. We didn't forget. <laughs> and uh, she is the president and our director of the Rosewood Heritage Foundation. And she's from Miami. And I'd like you to give her a hand as she comes forward. Yeah. Give you greetings. And thank you for allowing us to take a part in this great part of history. Everyone has done such a marvelous job. I am very well pleased and I have a lot to um, carry back and talk with my 125 seniors where I am employed. I want to thank my husband John for being so patient. I didn't feel well. Told him I didn't want to come. And once I got here, I was ready to turn around and go back to Miami. <laughs> but the longer I stayed, the more I heard. Well, I figured I owe it to my ancestors to say something and um, on their behalf because that's the purpose of the Rosewood Heritage Foundation and being with this great group of people. My grandfather, John Wesley Bradley, my grandmother, Virginia Carrier Bradley, two people who are instrumental in having me to know that I am somebody. I came from somewhere and I belong to a great group of a family. My father, Mr. Scott said, and he and I have known each other for years, knew, he knew my father. Some people call him Gavester. Others says Nader, but I've also gone to the underground and searched the records, and they have him listed as Nathan. I don't care what the name is. I know who I am, and I'm very proud. My grandfather was the father of nine children in Rosewood. And I got a chance to meet all of those children except one. And that was my uncle, Wesley James. Now the families of the Bradleys, the Carriers, the Colmans, the Edwards, the Evans, the Goings, the Robinsons, and the Holes. Now, for some reason, the whole family has been left off of the lineage, but we have a living survivor 
here with us today, and I think that she's probably about 96 years old. She's somewhere 94, but I, I know she's nearing the 100. Her name is Mary Magdalene Hall Daniel, and she's alive in the town of Hillwood. So by that, you know, I'm very close keeping contact with the family members because I need to still know what they can tell me that will make me even stronger. Now, getting back to Rosewood, I was born in Levy County, and my father did not leave Levy County, the town of Bottom Creek, until I believe the year 1964. So I have close ties, knew a lot of people who maybe didn't want me to know them. The Yetis, John and Mary Yeti were the post office um, keepers during that time. Um, there was a grocery store, Mrs. Scott, who I mentioned my father was, I guess you would call him the butcher, the delivery man, whatever. But that was, he was also employed for the West Brothers. And they were big people in that town. So a lot of the stereotype that some of our children have experienced coming up. I think that kind of protected me and my younger siblings, and there were eight of us, or nine of us, in Otter Creek, or have lived and visited there. It's wonderful to know who your family is, how did you become related. My grandfather's son, or my daddy's brother, the boy, married one of Mr. Hall's daughters, Dosha. Um, they lived in a little town called Wiley. So there are two towns between Otter Creek and Rosewood that have not been mentioned. Wiley is one. Okay. I, I, you know, so, I, I, but there's another one because the Burns, my cousin Adolphus Burns and his wife lived in this little town. She was a beautician there. And um, so many of the families that had to flee from Rosewood, that the men, the boys, they couldn't get on the train, had safe refuge, if only for a short time, from Rosewood to Otter Creek with Mr. Scott family and Mr. Henry Strong family and that's the family that's in Otter Creek now and I believe there were about 17 of those children and I believe 15 or 16 of them were boys. They worked on the railroad. So these men and boys had a way if they could get to the track. Those kind of cars that you would pump and push, that they would have the cross ties on, they hit them between those cross ties. Many of them were fed and protected by families from the great Gus Hammer. May 
still there. So the men all worked together. They, everybody knew everybody around there. Because from a little girl, I used to walk the six miles from Gautama to Otter Creek if I wasn't picked up by the mailman or some truck going along or somebody who was just nice enough to give me a ride. That's what got me into Miami because I was one of those children with their mind of her own would leave very nosy or interested in wanting to know what was just around the corner. Now, my mother, Jane Bell Monroe, lives in Gautama, Florida. That's just around the Wapasasa River, or the Swanee River, or 98 to 19 into our creek. So everybody knew everybody. Uh, one of the ministers that was in Rosewood, my older brother had an illness, so we used to go down to Rosewood and he would pray for him. He ha uh, his granddaughter, I believe, became the mayor or some congressional person in Order Creek, but they let he, the minister, move to um, Cross City. But that didn't stop us from going to Rosewood. I know the, knew the spotting real well. We would travel from Miami to Rosewood many times just to go to City Key to get fish. So I'm one of those that knows the berries that grow, when to harvest, how to can, and have plenty to eat. The deer tongue, I picked that. So if anybody want to say I wasn't there, I, I helped to pick deer tongue. Amen. I pulled moth from the tree, so I'm one of those children that if you turn me loose in the wilderness, I will find my way because I was taught on what side to follow the moths growing on the tree. But you had to be smart enough to learn to listen and look and watch where you walk in those woods. Because there was plenty of rattlesnakes, uh, coach whips, wild hogs, and uh, many other bears and all of that in the woods. So the men were very good hunters. When they came to Rosewood, they came in from the Carolinas. We became open with Rosewood because of my cousin, Annette Turner-Gorn, A.T., Lyra Bradley Davis. Um, as far as I was concerned, she was the one that I needed to have to tell her story. I'm the mother of six children and five of them are boys. We've taught them how to hunt, how to use their weapons. We go down to visit my father on a summer vacation after hearing me talk about all the land that um, Bonnie was granted on 375 acres 
John Wesley Bradley, 175, Lagoyne, attaining 600 acres. There were cousins who owned the acres here, two, three, five. And the kids get there, and it's barbed wire, no trespassing. I was instrumental in talking my Aunt Ruth into telling her story. Well, you don't want to open up each can of worms. Nobody's going to believe me if I do. Um, well, I knew enough people in and around um, Odd Creek, Gus um, even the, uh, there was a family that bought 600 acres of land uh, from New York. Moved into Rosewood without even knowing what had happened, never heard of the tragedy. Yes, I call it a massacre. To me, it was a massacre. Anytime you kill innocent people without a cause, that's a massacre. You're taking away something you cannot give and you did not give, you can't replace. When I looked through a scrapbook of pictures that Kathy and my cousin Annette and Dr. Zimmerman made of Rosewood, it made me feel very good. And then I think about her standing on the bridge all alone, crossing her arms and looking at the water. And I wondered to myself, what did she see? Talking and being around her, she was my mentor. Got me into doing what I am doing today because I refuse to let Rosewood die. Yeah. I promised my aunt that I would talk about it, whether anybody wanted to hear it, because I had to hear it coming up. I'm John Wesley Grant is sitting on the front porch in that rocking chair with his cane hanging on the back singing, that awful day will surely come. And he would start talking about that old story that I didn't want to hear anymore about. But I'm glad I listened. Because I am teaching my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren of their heritage. I want them to know that they are a part of Rosewood. Each of you in here have been affected by Rosewood, whether you believe it or not. There are some good white folks and there are some bad white folks. She said, but I don't want to be closed in around them anymore. We still have family members. This, this auditorium should be full of family, and we got them. Because we just had our 26th family reunion in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And there were more than 500 of us there, and that wasn't all. So it should be full. But you kind of get away. You don't want to hear. Maybe people don't believe. And yes, 
we all have a story to tell. Theirs could be different than mine. It doesn't matter. I'm speaking of that which I have been taught, that I know. And then I look at some of them, I say, well, you know, you may have read it because somebody else printed it, but how much is, is it true? Because after all, I was already here when you were born. That's where you get to organize and revamp and read over things. We have taped information from interviews from family members and we created the Rosewood Exhibit. There's one at Bethune-Cookman University, so if you want to see some of the things, some of the artifacts, pictures, and just read up or listen to one of the tapes there. And if you have any feedback, or if you have anything you, you, you disbelieve or can prove that isn't so, we're going to hear from you. I do have, in my heart, Rosewood is there. I love my family. I didn't choose to be born there. But I'm a part of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent. I'm a part of it. And I believe I'm one of the, as Dr. Zimmerman said, one of the multicultural generations. The one thing that I have learned is to learn your culture and teach your mind. And this is our land. God gave us one earth. He made it possible for us all to live together. Let's make it a happy place, because that was the intention. I want to thank God for our president. When he chose his cabinet, we are going to cover them in prayer, because that's what we were brought up on. One God, one faith, one baptism. He's the paymaster. He wants us all to enjoy this plan. Let us come together, be Republican, Democrat, liberal, those other people from Palin, and yes, I've been to Alaska, so I know I need to see Germany in the back. Yeah. Uh, that was one thing I needed to, to, to really know. See, we, we claim, but we need, after confession, we need to stand. Let us stand together. Let us be good Americans. Let us remember Rosewood is, Rosewood was, Rosewood will forever be. Let's keep. Rosewood alive. Thank you.
So we will have uh, them to come forward, Reverend Isaiah Branson and Dr. Patricia Sylvia-Nunn. If you all would come forward and they'll have the videos and everything ready for you. If anyone needs to step back at the back, we have hot coffee back there that just brought in a new pot. Rose the rose together, looking at houses. He's carried me to the field. 
Martin Saints, carry the graveyards, we've been many places. Some places where we didn't have good services, but that's all right. We were there, and God was with us. And I wanted to present to you Mr. Isaiah Brandt, a historian and a, a genealogist. Please come forward. Greetings, everybody. Uh, what I'm going to talk about now is the hidden stories. Uh, I'm an inquisitive person. When I was young, I was very inquisitive. Right out of high school, I didn't know where my people came from, so my grandmother just, they moved to Citrus County. And, and one day, I'm, I'm inquisitive. My mother always said I was inquisitive. So one day I uh, went to the house. She was sharing peas. And she was on the porch. She was about 85. She should be 102. And uh, I was asking about her family. And uh, I am uh, the great nephew of Mandy Pride. And Robert Suggs was his best friend. Um, so I was talking to my grandmother, and I, I said, I'm going to do this with the heart. I'm not going to use a script or anything. And uh, I was talking to grandmother, so I thought, ask her, where are you from? She said, well, I'm from Gainesville. I'm born in Gainesville in the 1800s. So we started talking. And one thing, my grandmother was very intelligent. She could read and write. She was uh, very, she spoke fluent. And uh, so I asked her, I said, uh, who is your family? Where are your brothers and sisters at? She started naming one in Tampa and different places. Of, uh, one, who was dead and who was living. So I said, who was your brother? So she broke down. She put her head in her hand and she started saying, they didn't have to kill that boy that way. So I said, Grandma, what you talking about? I said, well, you don't have to talk anymore. She said, no, they didn't have to kill that boy that way. I said, who? She said, Mandy. She said, they took that boy and killed him. And I said, um, how, why they killed him? She said, Mandy used to love the work. I'm talking, where am I now? I'm talking in the spirit. And she said, Mandy used to love the work, and he going to plow a field one day. So his mother had taught him how to run a mule. He was about 10 years old. And he they told him to plow three rows and come out of the field. So Mandy came out the field after he flied to the road. And uh, Robert Sullivan was waiting on him. They were friends. They were going to walk back to the house together. Mr. Cook noticed him because he had been working in the other field. He noticed that uh, Mandy stole his coat over his shoulder and began to walk. But what happened? They went by a watermelon field and they stopped there for a little while and they bust the watermelon and started eating the watermelon. And then uh, uh, what had been going on for a couple of days, uh, uh, three or four white teenagers were killing hogs, taking what they want to eat, and leaving the carcass, leaving the rest of it out there laying in the field. During that time, they had a law against uh, cattle arrest. They were, if you could get put in jail, or you could get hung. So during that time, when uh, Mandy was walking, leaving the, the three or four white guys who were doing that, they ran behind Mandy, and they caught him. And uh, it was in uh, uh, Half Moon, Florida. Half Moon is uh, east of Newberry. It's a town that is about three miles from Newberry to its site. And uh, my grandmother Susan lived there because they done peace work. They done work tonight. Back then, they had to go from one little place to another, picking 
uh, peas, cucumbers, whatever it was to survive. Right. So at that time, my grandmother Susie, which was born in 1857, was living in the Hadlow. And Manny was living with her. My grandmother, uh, Lizzie Carwell, uh, Lizzie Carwell Jackson was living with her, and my grandmother, and then Stella, their other daughter. So, what happened when they got Mandy, Mr. Cook went and told, uh, Susie, they got your grandson, they've been in lynching. So, Susie, uh, uh, next screen, please. Uh, and that's Mandy Graves, uh, I'm gonna go with protocol, but I want to get it out. That's man the grave. Uh, we visited the grave. My grandmother visited the grave, but she never wanted to put a stone on it because she didn't want to bring that stuff up around Newberry again. Mm -hmm. And but she would go there, we'd go periodically, and she would break down and we'll pick her up, and she'll get back up and carry back to the car. But uh, during that time, uh, see, uh, Linton, he was lynched on uh, September the seventh, nineteen oh two, and buried. September the third, because it was late at night when they cut his body down, and and they put him in a wagon, and then Robert Sud was hung also, and they put him in a wagon and took him back to their the to the house, and they let it, uh, they built a coffin, a wooden coffin, and they put him in there. But uh, you know, Manny uh, was a working uh, boy, as grandmother say, and he was a type of yeah, that wasn't lazy. And so, uh, what happened, see, the farmer uh, noticed the cattle um, uh, was slaughtered, and then Robert and, and uh, Manny and Robert's sons were the only two boys near the ground. Mm -hmm. But what happened, uh, uh, he lived near the ground and had no but just white guys, about three or four, who slaughtered the cattle. The you, Manny, and uh, Robert's sons, as a scapegoat, they called him. The teenage boys caught them two boys, about four or five of them, ganged him up and took him to took him to Mr. Dudley and, and Mr. Jeffco, which was a local community, next to please. And uh, and they took him and uh, they uh, gave him over to the auto. Mr. Dudley, uh, they they took him and they had the guns and everything, said, Well, you know, we're gonna take you up here and we're gonna deal with you. And as grandmother was saying, Mr. Cook noticed it when he went to Susan. Susan just called the Lindsay, they got your boy, and they taking him up to Lindsay to hang him. And, and grandmother said, during that time, they all got together. They, she put uh, her, she put some, uh, some over her and said, come on, baby, let's go. And she picked up and started running. And, and when she got to the uh, Lindsay, they had him up on the horse with the rope around his neck, so Lindsay just went forward. So they knocked her back and kicked and broke her reels and beat up real bad. But she still was trying to reach out for the horse. And, and they said, Mr. Dutton, he hit the horse, and, and when he hit the horse, uh, uh, Mandy was hung, and, and Grandmother said she heard his snake snap, and she looked around and she said his eyes were buzzing. And she said, she Begin to cry and break down, everybody was breaking down. And, um, and, 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 and my grandmother told me, she said, and, and uh, when Billy uh, Holiday, Billy Holiday came out with the song, uh, Strange, Strange Food, yeah. with Buzz and I, said she would cry. She couldn't hear that song because it reminded her of Brother Man. And so at that time, I told Grandma, I said, uh, now, uh, 
Now, why y'all don't go to the grave and put the stone on the grave? She said, because we don't want the people locally. They're so prejudiced now that if we put that stone on, they know we trying to bring up something. She said they also put in the paper that he was a murderer. He was accused of murdering uh, a cop. And, and uh, she said, but he didn't do anything. She said the Dudley was so evil people that she said, but what doing the hanging? This one got me. Grandmother said, doing the hanging, they had about a hundred white folks there with their children on their shoulders. Just to rejoice. Say the kids was all on their shoulders like it was a party. She said, she said, you could have saw the children on the people's neck. They're holding the children up on the neck. Look at them, look at them. And she said they were teaching their children evil. What to do? I'm serious. Someone said she said all the children were with their parents. Watching the hanging. And they was all saying, kill that nigga, kill that nigga, hang that nigga. And she grandma said she, they were drinking. She said they were drinking and they just partying. Of killing them children. The family was 10 and Robert Cullen was 12. Next screen, please. And then she was so sad, the death of her brother. I, in the census, I got them in the census when they one year apart. I have the census with Dilly, Landon, Estella, Willis, and Cherry. They were my great aunt and my great uncle. Yeah, I got the census with all the names on it. And that was a, a 1900. That was uh, two years before this death. And uh, my grandmother really, she told me, she said, she said, you know, I, I can always see my brother's eyes. She said, I can lay down at night and see his eyes buzz. She said, I never could get his eyes out of my mind. And, and, uh, and when she was, uh, Ninety uh, eight years old, I never forget. We had a family reunion, and they was gonna take a picture. So she had a baby in her arm, and the white photographer came to get the baby. She said, "No, don't take it. Don't take it." She had, she had a flashback. Don't take that baby. You gonna do something with it? You gonna kill it? You gonna hang it? She just had a complete flashback at the age of ninety eight, thinking about men. And they and they carried him uh, after he was hung, Mr. Cook. Excuse me, I get get back on the mic. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Mr. Cook uh, went ahead the wagon and horse and went and picked up the body. And they buried him at uh, St. Mark, had a short funeral, and they put him away. That's not in that church. It's a, a step down on the left hand side. That's where the original church he was buried in. That grandmother, uh, uh, when we went out there, she showed us where the steps was at, right inside that church. And she said, that's the original church he was uh, buried in, but this one on the side was built later. So, next thing, please. And Robert Flood died from his mansion. He was buried in the uh, uh, Skull's field. Robert Flood's family had property out there, and they buried him in that field, over field. Uh, my grandma said when they was leaving, after her brother had been hung, Robert's son was hollering for his mother and weeping and calling his mother out. Mother, please help me, help me, help me. And uh, uh, all of a sudden they walked around the corner. They heard when you can hear the letter snap. She said, you can hear the And that's when you know that they've been killed. 
And so they went home and they stayed And those were let the hang in September 2nd, 1902, in this hammock in Newberry. There was my grandma Susie Kendry Jackson. Uh, she was born 
out of the field and went on home, still stopping to get in the watermelon, but in the watermelon and eating it, they wouldn't have caught them. They caught them eating the watermelon. They said, there you go, there you go, there you go, let's get them. And that, she said, she probably would have went on home and didn't stop, but she said she can't make no excuses like that because neighbors, thank God, thank you. 